this morning. Welcome to church. So glad that you're here. Um, it's great to see so many faces out there. And if you're joining online, again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, excited for today. Before I jump into the message today, I would like to have a bit of a, a family moment and just extend um, condolences and sympathies. Um, Florence, uh, Florence Johnson, who's been a long-standing member of our congregation, she passed away earlier this week on Tuesday, uh, 97 years old. And so she's the mother of Dale Johnson. And so, yeah, we just want to extend uh, our prayers and our deepest sympathy to the families there as they're mourning and making arrangements uh, at this time. Uh, the family is gathering for a service on Monday. Uh, I believe Pastor Kurt is officiating uh, that, so our thoughts and prayers will be with them. Uh, why don't you join with me in prayer? We'll pray for the family and then pray for our service and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, uh, we just submit to you, Lord, and uh, turn our attention towards you and offer our thanks for who you are and for your love towards us. And God, our hearts go out to uh, the Johnson family, Lord God, with the passing of Florence, and know that she's in your company now rejoicing, Lord, and yet, Lord, she's left behind those who are grieving and mourning and sad for what they're missing out uh, with her presence with them. And so, Lord, we pray that your peace would be upon the family and that you would comfort them during this time. And Lord, as we turn our focus to uh, this passage of Scripture in Second Peter, Lord, would you be with us? Would you open your word to us? Would you speak to us, Lord, um, that which you wish to say to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I had a, a title for our message this morning, it's called Living Looking Forward. And today actually brings us to the close of the Peter perspective that we've been in all summer. Uh, we've gone through first and second Peter, and now we here are at second Peter chapter three. And as you could tell from Sheldon's reading of the word, it's all about the day of the Lord. And there is lots in there by way of fire and judgment and melting. It's the end of the world. I'm so grateful I get to deliver this message. I couldn't help but wake up this morning and see it's dreary and cloudy. I'm like, it's a great day for an end of the world message. So here we go. Now, the day of the Lord uh, in Scripture often refers to this day when God intervenes in a miraculous way on the affairs uh, and the interactions of people. So he would move in judgment, bringing justice, but he also acts in a way that brings salvation. Uh, and Peter talks of this. The New Testament, as it's talked about the day of the Lord, it generally refers to this hope in Jesus' second coming, this promise that he has made, this fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to say, salvation has come, I'm here, the cross is the way to God, but I'm coming again. About when Jesus comes back. Now, many of us, when you talk about the end of the world and signs leading to the times, it's natural to be really curious about the details of those events and how that works. And Peter actually very explicitly talks clearly about this in, well, clearly, relative term, but clearly-ish in what that looks like. There's lots of imagery. Think about this. He talks about there being fire, judgment, destruction, melting of, of, uh, melting of elements. Like very vividly and graphically, he talks about this. And he mentions these details over and over again. But it's interesting that Peter doesn't leave us just with a bunch of details to sort of sort through. As we journey through chapter 3 uh, today, um, you'll see that there's a lot of 
exhortation and encouragement that he has built in to this last chapter for believers. And we're hopefully going to tease some of that out uh, this morning as we go. It's meant to be uh, a message of encouragement. So in regards to the context, um, 2 Peter doesn't strike us as like an apocalyptic book necessarily. It's not really about uh, all about the end of the world, though he talks about it in chapter 3. It seems like the context of the letter is that there are, it's addressed to Christians to encourage them, but to warn them to say, hey, there's people in your midst that are teaching things that just aren't true. And they don't line up with the gospel that Jesus has given us. And so Peter often has very strong words. As you've heard Pastor Steve's message from last week on chapter 2, there's very strong language in there um, against sort of the false teaching and stuff that's taking place. And he's warning believers. And so chapter 3, it's almost as though Peter sort of feels the burn of, um, of having like really lashed out against the, the false teachers. And now he's returning in, a, in an effort to want to comfort and encourage and exhort believers. Saying, hey, I haven't, you're, you know, you're, you're doing well at the faith and I want to encourage you. But just before we jump into that, I'd like, if you will, I'd like to do a bit of a, an imagination exercise with you, Okay. Half part serious, half part silly. But I'd appreciate it if you play along. So if when you're using your imagination, if you feel like you need to close your eyes and it helps you get in it, that's, that's great. You're, you're welcome to do that. But imagine with me, if you will, that the day of the Lord comes. It happens. And so... Uh, I like to think in, in my imagination, I'm out, I'm out for a walk, you know, the 1200 block of 2nd Avenue, and I'm out walking, and the sun is shining, and then all of a sudden, you hear it. It starts dully, but then begins to build, but it's the sound of a trumpet. The Bible talks about how the day of the Lord will come at the sound of a trumpet, and you hear it, and you begin to turn your attention to it, and it stirs the very core of your person. You stop walking, and you're captivated by the sound that you hear. But not only that, but you notice the trees, the grass, everything seems to be on attention to this sound. And then your eyes lift up, and it, it's the weirdest thing. You can't, don't have words to describe it, but the sky is peeled back, and the stars are gone, the heavenlies are gone, and you see Jesus coming to earth. You're caught up in this moment. You're, you're awestruck at his majesty. The next thing you know, you find yourself with the whole host of humanity awaiting before the white throne of judgment that the Bible talks about. The throne is up there, Jesus, and the, the elders are there, and there Jesus is judging. People are approaching the throne, and Jesus is going over with them an account of their life. It's a spectacular sight, spectacular sight. And we get a little silly here, but imagine, if you will, that you're standing behind Pastor Chris. He's next up in line, and he approaches the throne. And you can't overhear what Jesus is saying, but things seem pretty serious. Chris has got a lot of accounting to do, and he knows it, a lot of accounting for. And then, as this is going on and on, you're growing a little uncomfortable because it's taking so long. And all of a sudden, the weirdest thing happens. An angel descends, and he comes before you, and he says, hey, you know, 
awfully sorry about this, but we, we made a bit of a clerical error about how long this is going to take. And so we're actually just going to put you right back down on earth and tell you what, in 24 hours, we'll pick up where we left off. Sound good? And just like that, you're back wherever you were. The sun is shining. Trees are blowing. But you've just had this encounter. You've just experienced the end of the world. But you've been given grace and you've got another 24 hours. Now, I know that's a bit silly, but here's the seriousness of that question. As you think about that, really think about that, if you had such an experience, in your next 24 hours, what is it about your life that would change? How would you live differently those last moments here on earth? I mean, when I thought about this, I thought about this exercise in my office earlier this week. And as I was kind of caught up in the moment, I realized, man, the first thing that gets in, that's in my heart to do is I want to go home and I want to hug my family. I would hug Jenna, I would hug my kids, and I would look at my kids and I would say, kids, you've done an amazing job. I've loved being your dad. I mean, you kids have drove me crazy, like to the brink of craziness, but I just want to let you know that you've done a fantastic job. It's been my life's honor to be your dad. Well done. And after I loved all my family, my attention would turn, what does this mean? What about the reality that if the world is ending and people are facing judgment, what about those that don't know Jesus, that heaven heard the good news. And in my mind's eye, I see those, those neighbors, you know, you know those neighbors that you've always been meaning to talk to, to get into their life, to be a blessing to them. And you've just, for whatever reason, you've held off. Well, in my imagination, I go across the street, I rap on those doors and I say, hey, my name is Chris. I know I've lived across the street from you for a while. How are things going I would have an interest in wanting to hear about their life and know where they're coming from. But in that, I'd want to share with them the good news, the message about Jesus, because time is short. And all of a sudden, I don't see, I don't witness a Chris Drinnen who's nervous and holding back and unsure about what he's saying. I see a Chris who's confident, who's experienced the love of God and is so excited to share that with somebody who has never heard it or never had an opportunity to respond. Now, a bit of an interesting exercise, I know. But I can't help but think that as I read the third chapter of 2 Peter, I think that this is sort of what's on Peter's heart. That it's not just about the details of how the world is going to end, but that there's something motivating, something pushing, something stirring our hearts towards action. And as we jump in, I... I hope you'll share with me and that you'll see this and you'll discover this for yourself. So if you've got a Bible in front of you in your second, you know, second Peter, chapter three, that's where we're hanging out. So here we go. We're going to jump in. Dear friends, verse one, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First note, I think it's so cool that repeated language throughout this third chapter, uh, alongside that of fire and melting, is this notion of dear friends. This idea of reminding them who he's talking to, that you're, you're the beloved, you're part of the family. And I think there's, there's something about that. So, um, 
Yesterday, uh, it's September long weekend this weekend, and we have friends out at the lake who have a boat. And they said, hey, it's probably the last weekend for the boat. Why don't you and the family come out and we'll do some boating? I'm like, absolutely, right? Who doesn't love friends who have a cabin and a boat, right? They're, and they're so generous with it, right? So we head out there, the, the whole family, the, the Drinnens, all six of us, and we get out there. And of course we're boating and the kids are doing tubing. And you would, my, my daughter, um, they all tube, but, but Autumn particularly, she's 20, 21 months so eager to have that big life jacket on and be tubing with her mom. And she didn't want to sit on mom's lap. She had to have her own seat on the tube. Like she was just reckless and ready. Like she loved it. It was amazing. Me, not so much. You couldn't even get me on the tube. My family knows me well. They know I don't really like cold water at all. And so I'm reluctant to do anything about with the cold water. And I'm actually not, like, I mean, I did some wake surfing earlier this summer and really liked it, but I'm kind of holding back. And Francis, he tells me, he said, Chris, I got the thing for you. I got a wetsuit. Get in a wetsuit. This will be great. You won't even feel the sting of the water. So I'm like, okay. And that's a life lesson in itself, trying to get a wetsuit on. Like, you know, spandexy, kind of like trying to stretch it all over your body. It's just the weirdest experience. I encourage you to do it just to, just to have a couple laughs. Anyways, it's a black wetsuit. And I get this thing. I'm standing on the back of the boat and I finally get this thing done up and I, I can't believe it like I don't have a flattering physique underneath this shirt but that wetsuit sucked me into shape like I was I was feeling pretty good and I'm standing on the back of the boat kind of like this going like this feels pretty great and my son who's three he looks at me and he says with a look of awe in his eyes he looks at me he goes Batman <laughs> I went that's right I said our little secret don't tell anyone but I was like, I look, he thinks I look like Batman. I'm like, that's so great. And I mean, obviously I'm not Batman, but it made me feel awesome. And it, so being, what does that have to do with this morning? Well, this notion of Peter referring to them as dear friends, this term of endearment, the family of God, brothers and sisters, he's wanting to rally them and stir in them how God sees them and their importance. In the same way that being called Batman made me feel pretty important and ready to face the water, okay? Here we are. And Peter in these verses, how does he frame it? As he's about to talk about the day of the Lord, how does he frame it? It's really important we catch this. He frames it that I want to stir you to wholesome thinking. This notion of not just a a, a cognitive activity of understanding something, but no, for Peter, wholesome thinking is being able to perceive a spiritual truth and apply it. Right? It's this difference between Greek thinking and Hebrew thinking that we see um, in Scripture where Greek thinking is this idea of kind of like how we do actually academics today. Like you know and understand something when you can regurgitate it, when you can think about it and know it and get it back out there. But in the Hebrew way of thought, it was very different. Their idea of knowing and understanding was that when you understood something, you lived your life in such a way that it, that truth was applied that it impacted the way that you live. Two different views on knowing and understanding, but the Hebrew one gets us a little closer to what Peter is wanting to encourage throughout this passage. Wholesome thinking comes to mind not just as a mental process, but it's rooted and it has a source, and that source is the word of God. He says that very clearly. And what Jesus said through his prophets. So it begs, to ask, it begs us to ask this question, What's the source of your thinking? How wholesome is your thinking? 
Peter makes it really clear that if we want to think rightly and wholesomely about things, we need God's word to be our source. And so as we jump into this this morning, allow God's word to penetrate your heart and challenge you, not just in terms of a mental exercise, but as a way of implementing it into your life. He moves on here into verse 3, if you're following with me. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They're going to say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You see, what the false teachers were saying is that it's been so long, this Jesus guy, he's not coming back. And the implication of this, this is what Peter was so upset about, is that they they would say, there is no judgment. There is no accountability. So it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you believe or what you do with your life. You're not going to have to stand before a judge and give an account. And you could see why Peter wants to rally to correct this deception. Now, it's also interesting because... Um, did I? Yes, sorry. Um, this notion of the last days, the last days, right? Peter believed that he was living in the last days. Believers in the first century believed that they were living in the last days. And yet here are we, 2,000 plus years later, going, oh, we're living in the last days. Does that make them out to be a liar? Does that make them out that they they didn't understand correctly? Well, no, I I don't really think so. You see, last days, I think, is a way of referring to an era. And in salvation history, Jesus has come, the cross, the invitation for all to believe in him and find find peace with God through the cross. He ascended to heaven, promised he was coming again, gave the spirit to believers to represent him well on earth. Not by their own power, but by the power that he fills them with. And the thing that we're all waiting for now is the promised return that Jesus is most certainly coming again. And so in that way, if you look at salvation history, you can understand, man, last days, we are living in the last days, in the last era available to humankind to make a decision for Christ. It's serious business, and Peter's diving right into it. Here he goes on, here's his uh, rebuttal. In verse 5, Peter says, But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of, get this, judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Deliberately forget. How do you do that? It doesn't seem like it was just something that these uh, scoffers randomly sort of forgot or got distracted with, but this idea of deliberately forgetting, intentionally focusing on something else, avoiding the truth, disregarding God's word, and going in an unknown direction. I think this is why Peter is so clear in chapter 3. If you read it through, there's lots about remember, recall, stand fast, hear this, so that we don't forget what is said. And in fact, Peter's rebuttal says, actually, you remember things, you remember history wrongly, or only to your own advantage, because he says, 
There was creation where God stepped in and acted. We also see a judgment with water where God stepped in and brought about judgment to the world. And we see the promise that this world too, there's another judgment coming. And on this notion of judgment, I find it interesting that he refers back to the flood and then this promised fire. And I remember back to a, to a message I did on the book of Daniel, and as I spent time in there, I was really captivated by something, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember them? Uh, they took a stand for the Lord, wouldn't bow down to a golden idol, and the judgment on their lives was that you, was that you will now face death in a fiery furnace for your not bowing down to King Nebuchadnezzar's gold staff, statue. So it says that they heated this furnace up seven times hotter. And when they came to throw these three guys in, the guards that actually led them to the mouth of the furnace, they died from the heat. Yet somehow these three guys end up in this furnace. But judgment and the consumption of their body by the flames was not what they experienced. No, they experienced an additional presence with them there in that fire. God shows up in the most miraculous ways and he's present with them. So that even when they come out of the fire, they don't even smell like smoke. Their hairs aren't even singed. They're perfectly preserved and protected because God was with them. So the judgment that mankind intended for them to destroy them, God was there and used it to totally preserve them. And it ties in with this notion of the flood. Remember the waters that came and flooded the earth as God was grieved in his heart about all that mankind has become? And yet the same waters that came and brought death, the righteous experienced salvation. Noah and his family in an ark and all those animals, safe. The same act of judgment on both the righteous and the ungodly, and yet their experience is very different because of who they're trusting in. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. So here we have it. We, we find that Peter is telling us there's two parts to this promise. That God's coming, Jesus is coming, the judgment that's to come is meant to bring justice to those who are being wicked. To judge them and to judge us. But that's only half the, half the promise. But you can't help these believers from wondering how this is going to happen. Peter goes on in verse 8. He says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. See, Christians wanted to understand this too. And so Peter gives them this response. And I find this kind of interesting. Uh, I almost, the best way I can kind of describe it is I almost see it sort of as two ditches especially with the end of the world and the last days, is we tend to think um, we can err in one of two ways on these ditches. On the one hand, the ditches that we're impatient for it. We're frustrated with, with sin. We want God's judgment to come and we're impatient for it. So we begin to look into signs and wonders and place together and see how where we become convinced that, you know, setting a time and date for when God is coming because we're so impatient. Yet that's a ditch. But the other ditch on the other side is where we become so complacent. We say, well, you know, who knows if God is coming? He hasn't come before. It's been 2,000 years. 
And we grow complacent. And we don't let the promise motivate us or stir us. So to the one, I think he would say, you know, um, the day of the Lord, um, they need to hear that to the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And to the other, they need to hear that a thousand years is like a day. To bring us back on the straight and narrow. So why the delay? Good Christians, ask that question. Why the delay? And I, I think that Peter gives us an answer here in verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see what the false teacher saw as a weakness in saying, he's delaying, he's forgotten about it, it's not going to happen. Peter understands it correctly as God's strength. That God is having patience with us. In fact, that it's the very heart of God that he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to live without him. So he's patient, giving all an opportunity to turn towards him in repentance. Oh, can you hear Peter's heart in this? These scoffers are not going easy on the, on the early believers. They're pushing an agenda. They're pushing a teaching. And yet Peter doesn't want the believers to hate them or to disregard them. Instead, what comes out of Peter's heart is the very same thing we see coming out of Jesus' heart as he hangs on that cross. Where Jesus looks at those who are crucifying him and he says to them, he says, Father, in heaven, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And in the same way here, Peter is saying it's God's patient. The reason it's a delay is that we can have hope, is that it's showing us God's heart for people, that he wants all to turn towards him. Amazing, amazing. In verse 10, he carries on and he talks a little bit about how the day of the Lord is coming. And in verse 10 we read, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. It's coming like a thief, not like a parade. You see, it makes me think of this time, I, I was living in Calgary, and, and Calgary loves their stampede, right? They didn't get to have it this year, but they love their stampede. And there's an energy behind the stampede, so much so that the Calgary parade, like these Albertans are nuts, they get up before the sun, they head downtown, they know where the parade is going to meander through downtown, and they set up chairs and, and, and sitting areas, and they get close, and they, they just want to await a parade, to see the parade. And this one year that I was there, it was particularly special because Prince William and Kate, we were told we're going to be in the parade. Oh, man, like I'm not a huge royal royalty guy fan. Like I'm not snipping the pictures out of the magazines and putting them up on my wall. But when you're in Calgary and you hear that Prince William and Kate are going to be part of the parade, you're kind of like, I got to do my due diligence. So I got up early. I went down and there's just an excitement in the air. And we're talking, you know, there's going to be, it's a huge parade. It's great. And we know which direction the parade's going to come from. And we're sitting there waiting. And I'm, I'm kind of imagining, how's this going to turn out? Like, you know, imagine there's going to be some bands playing. There's going to, like the preamble, right? Like they're going to, they're going to build this up. And, and it's just going to get better and better as we see the parade coming until finally it'll be Kate and William. It'll be amazing, right? And then it'll just be downhill from there. It'll just be whatever. 
So as we're waiting and we're all looking in the direction, waiting for this parade to happen, something unexpected happened. From the other direction, there was a few, uh, like four or five police on motorcycles uh, leading a number of cars and followed by police on motorcycles. And the lights are going and the sirens are going and everyone is actually kind of confused. Until you look the other way and as you see the car go by in one of the limousines with the window half down, wearing a white cowboy hat, is Prince William. And he's partly leaning out and he's waving. I got to see him with my own eyes. It was amazing. But on the other hand, I was kind of a little bit disappointed because I thought it was going to be this big deal and part of the parade. But it wasn't. It caught me off guard. I didn't get to see the signs. It just showed up. And Peter here is saying, he's affirming what the Bible has always taught in the New Testament says, is nobody knows the day or the hour. You don't get to know that. Only the Father himself knows that. And he says it's coming like a thief, not like a parade where you get to anticipate it. And so that should be a wake-up for us. You see, um, uh, the last words in this is kind of interesting. I find like Peter is finally offering a bit of hope here because he's saying, um, and everything done in it will be laid bare. An interesting word to translate, but it's not this idea that everything is undone and, and disaster befalls and it's all destroyed, but this idea that things are revealed and opened up as they really are before the God who's coming. He goes on in verse 11, he says, asks a very important question. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. You see, our eschatology or our understanding of the way the world is going to end, it's always meant to inspire and stimulate believers towards holy and godly living. And I like that verse about speeding its coming, this reality that we know the ugliness and the atrocity of sin. And honestly, in my own life and as I see it in our world, I can't wait for final righteous judgment to happen to bring about the conclusion of that. And so in living holy lives, you you act as a witness and bear witness to this God of love who's being patient so as to save as many as possible and to be a part of the work that he's doing. Verse 13, it tells us this. It says, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, where righteousness dwells. I kind of go, by this point in the chapter, I'm like, Peter, it took you long enough. You were giving us half the promise for a long time about destruction. And finally here, he gets to the second part of that promise. A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's a promise that Peter had read in Isaiah. It goes like this, Isaiah 65 Verse 17, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And again, in Revelation, the the vision that John has, Revelation 21, 3 and 4, hear these verses. It says, and I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them and will be his people And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, 
or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You see, Peter's perspective is that the day of the Lord hinges on a twofold promise. One, that yes, judgment brings judgment and the, the banishment of sin and wickedness for all time. But two, the message of hope of the new world that God is establishing, the new heavens and the new earth. How good is this promise that he makes to us? It's good news. Um, I made the promise to my kids uh, a number of years ago that we we're going to do Disney 2020. That's not working out. My kids know what it's like to have dad break a promise because I'm just Chris. I'm just limited. I do the best I can. Sometimes I don't do that, but I'm faulty. I have air. Sometimes my word is good. Sometimes I let people down. Lots of times I do. The promise is only as good as the promise keeper, promise maker. Who's making this promise to us? It's not a man. It's not a prophet with some idea, but it's God Almighty promising us a new heaven and a new earth. We can take him at his word and rejoice in that. I'm going to wrap up and close uh, here shortly. Peter goes on in this. He has a little bit of a rabbit trail talking about Paul. He inspires people, telling them, dear friends, again, it's important to live spotless lives, blameless, to be at peace with God. He encourages us again, this notion of looking forward to this day. Three times he says that. That it's his desire that we live lives that are postured towards looking forward to Christ's return. At the very end of his verse, he says this. Or he says in verse 17, he says, Therefore, dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the air of lawless and fall from your secure position. But, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. He says to grow in grace and in knowledge of God. We need that as Christians. How do you grow in grace? Well, maybe it's similar to the way that I do it, where I botch it and I blow it and I wreck it and I go, God, I don't understand why you love me or why you even care. But I'm reminded about Christ's sacrifice and God's heart towards me. And I can ask for forgiveness because it's available. But it's not just for me. He says to grow in the knowledge of Jesus as well. That Jesus has a plan, he has a vision for our lives that we need to lean into and live into. In a moment I'm going to pray, but just before I do, I, I feel like this is a great segue for our belief series. So this wraps up our Peter perspective. But we're heading into a 31-week, and we're, not, we're trying not to call it a series. We're actually trying to call it as a transformational journey where it's addressing our beliefs, our actions, and the kind of people we are. And our hope is that you'll get on board with this, whether you're here at church to hear the messages or you're at home. We want you to get this book in your hands, and there's one free for every family, and if you need more, leave a donation and take the ones you need. But if you're at home and you want to be a part of this series, and you can't get out to get the book, let the office know. I'm, I'm happy to be driving around delivering these books 
happy to do that. We want to get it into your hand. We're excited about this series. But we're also including kind of a, a, a postcard because we don't want just you to be a part of this series. Maybe there's a friend or a family member that could benefit from ex- exploring what the Bible teaches, that we could understand what we believe and why we believe it. And so maybe there's a neighbor that you want to drop this in their mailbox. And honestly, it's our hope. It's our hope that you would show up and you would, you would take it in here in the service, but also maybe for you know, reasons of COVID that you're, you're more comfortable hanging out at home. But you've got people that are in your life, families that you're still seeing anyways. Maybe Sundays can become a time where they would gather together and you would study this Believe series together and have an opportunity to talk about it and experience transformation as we grow in God's grace and we know more about who Jesus is and what he's asking of us. Please stand. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you hold all things in your hands from beginning to end. You know exactly how things are going to shake down and you're not worried. We thank you that as we encounter in Peter's chapter here about your desire to be patient, longing for all to experience salvation, to turn in repentance towards you. Lord, would you use the promise of your coming to motivate us and to stir us into action that we wouldn't be complacent, but that we would reflect your heart to our community. Would you transform us to look a little more like you and through the work of your spirit draw many into your kingdom. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.